John Piper once said, I feel like I have to get saved every morning. I wake up and the devil is sitting on my face. What Dr. Piper is getting at with that funny and memorable picture is illustrating for us what being a Christian will sometimes feel like, even on a daily basis. Sometimes it does feel like, as we're following Jesus, we come face to face with this anti-Jesus demonic realm, shooting these fiery darts at our minds. These fiery darts of lies and deception, darts of needless busyness and fruitless idleness, relentless darts and arrows that look like good things for us to spend our time and energy on, but in reality, they are hidden, crafty schemes that are filled with frivolous distractions to keep us from having a white-hot fervor for Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul said in Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so friends, it's good just to kind of lay out something we know theologically, but we forget. We are fighting in a real war every day, but it is an invisible war. There is an invisible war that is going on in our midst that is far more than just human beings. It's an invisible war with both temporary and eternal consequences. And then in John, read earlier from James chapter 1, there's another war going on, and it's a tug-of-war match with indwelling sin in our flesh. James says in James 1, starting in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. And then the Apostle John He takes what Paul has said and James has said and combines these two images about another fierce battle we face as Christians. And it is the battle of the fallen world we live in. A world that is led astray by sin and Satan combined. John says in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So according to Dr. Piper, but more importantly, according to the Scriptures, the Christian life is not a cakewalk. A check-your-box Christianity does not exist in the New Testament. The Christian life is not like an uninterrupted stroll on a mid-afternoon summer vacation at the beach. No, it's more like paddling slowly with toil and tears in a river upstream against a strong and dangerous current that is trying to knock you and I out of the boat. So whether you're new to the Christian faith 
or you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. In many ways, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same stream, helping one another row our paddles as we look together to the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, for strength, for endurance, for guidance, and for hope. Friends, the Christian life is not just a fight, but it's a race. A race that requires discipline, self-control, and endurance. It's a race filled with seasons of joy and blessing and seasons where our faith is tested. Tested as we wait humbly on the help of our God. So brothers and sisters, how are you doing in this spiritual fight this morning? Are you wanting to tap out? How's the person sitting next to you doing spiritually this morning? How are you and I doing preparing each day God gives us for the real spiritual battles we face, knowing that one day we will give an account for how we've lived for him? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 62. Psalm 62, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 274, Psalm 62. Psalm 62 is similar in its content to the psalms that surround it. From around Psalm 54 to Psalm 64, we see various themes come up in David's life that all pertain to different spiritual, physical, and military struggles he faced. Uh, whether it's from seasons of life where King Saul and his followers were out to do David harm, or he was facing of this sad reality that one of his own sons, one of his own kindred, wanted to revolt against him and usurp his throne and even steal away the people's hearts from trusting in his own father. Friends, David, like many of us, found himself between a rock and a hard place. He found himself like many of us this morning, who are looking around for answers to the problems of our life. But we're realizing that if we look to the wrong voices for those answers, it could lead to bad places. So this psalm captures for us the heart of a man that recognizes where his ultimate strength comes from, where his ultimate hope comes from, where his ultimate confidence and Ultimately, his salvation comes from, especially when he's hit rock bottom and he's at the weakest he's ever been. In the heading, the psalm says it's a psalm of David. It was arranged for usage in Israel's psalm singing, hence to the choir master. In other words, Psalm 62 was used in corporate worship in singing praises and prayers to God. So, if you look back at your liturgy this morning, your order of service, guess what we're going to do at the close of this morning's sermon? Anyone want to take a guess? We're going to sing Psalm 62. So if the nail doesn't get into our heart deep enough from the sermon, we're relying on the song to finish the work. We see also this psalm was collected or organized under one of David's chief musician leaders, Jay Duthan. Just to see if you're awake, let's say that together. Jay Duthan. That was weak. Here we go. Jay Duthan. Okay, work on it. 
You can read more about Jeduthun and other musicians and leaders that served under King David like him in 1 Chronicles 25. Uh, the specific background or context for Psalm 62 is pretty uncertain, but the content of the psalm helps us to see that this is a man who is praying and is displaying his confident trust in God because God is a safe refuge for the souls of his children. It's a psalm that's going to challenge us this morning here at CCBC, calling us to examine whether we are drawing the source of our strength, the source of our salvation from God or from something or someone else. Psalm 62, please follow with me. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, the psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths. But inwardly, they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. The balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken... Twice have I heard this. The power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea of the sermon. I'll repeat it twice. Prioritize God as first in your life. And trust him in every circumstance of your life. Prioritize God as first in your life. And trust him in every circumstance of your life. But that begs the question, why? Why should we prioritize and keep God as first in our life? And what exactly does it actually look like to trust him in every circumstance of your life? Well, if you are taking notes, we've got three main points that will shape the outline of the sermon. We should put God first in our lives because, number one, from God alone comes our great salvation. From God alone comes our great salvation. Point number two, 
From God alone comes our soul's rest and security. From God alone comes our soul's rest and security. And point number three, from God alone comes enduring strength, committed love, and just reward. From God alone comes enduring strength, committed love, and just reward. Let's look at that first point together. And as a forewarning to you, like the weatherman, this will be the longest point of the three. So if it takes a while to get through one, which it will, the last two are much quicker. Point number one, from God alone comes our great salvation. Look with me at verses one and two. David says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now look down at verses five to seven. As we see this repeated in an intentional refrain, to emphasize the significance of David's confident trust in God for his salvation. Verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. You see, David finds himself in a season of emotional turmoil, a season of social pressure, a season of relationship division, a season of deep spiritual personal attack. And he does what everyone in this room this morning should be doing if you want to have true peace in your life. What does David do? He trusts in God alone and not in himself. He trusts in God alone and not in himself. Friends, the greatest hindrance of anyone coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not merely a lack of evidence or lack of information. No, the greatest hindrance of anyone coming to faith in Jesus Christ after hearing the gospel message is ultimately the stumbling block of self-salvation. You see, until we, or anyone for that matter, comes to the end of ourselves, trying to save ourselves, you know, working and climbing some proverbial good person ladder to heaven, running some works-based religious treadmill, competing in a self-righteous comparison game with other people in our minds. Friends, until we die to having a savior complex of having too high of an opinion of me, myself, and I, where we think we have to prove something to God or to other people for our self-worth, until the love of self dies, we will not experience the power of God on our life. If you are tempted to say, Pastor, Pastor, I don't see God working in my life. Pastor, Pastor, I feel like my prayers hit the ceiling. Pastor, Pastor, where is the Lord? Friends, the Lord hasn't gone anywhere. The Lord is very near, but we cannot see 
feel or experience his power when we are trying to be our own savior. Oh, friends, to see the power of God on your life requires us to become much smaller in our personal self-assessment. And Jesus must become larger and more precious in our eyes. You see, when we view ourselves as autonomous, sovereign kings or white-knuckling control freaks over our lives, we're only going to experience bondage. We can't handle that type of responsibility. We can't be the Lord of our life. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We aren't strong enough. Friends, we're not good enough. The more we try to be in sovereign control of our lives, friends, the more we're going to realize we can't. It's a futile and frustrating ambition to have. But when we view ourselves not as little sovereigns, but unworthy servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we view ourselves as adopted and beloved children of the Most High God of love and Heavenly Father, friends, that's when we start experiencing true freedom. That's when we start experiencing the joy of real forgiveness, real self-worth, real peace, a solid sense of purpose in our life. When God is truly number one, and when God is truly the center of our lives, it's only then we begin to live the good life God made us for. It's also important to note how David trusts in God alone, and he shows us his trust by calmly waiting on God. He says there in verse 1, For God alone... My soul waits in silence. Do you lack peace from God this morning? Does this silence right now bother you? Does being alone with your own thoughts frighten you? Does it make you nervous, wondering why I'm not looking at my notes? A mild state of panic does us some good every once in a while. Do you feel an annoying Low ebb of frustration brewing on the inside that just won't leave you alone. The little pebble in the shoe kind of feeling of endless discomfort and restlessness inside your soul. Would some of us be humble enough today to actually say with our mouth, and admit we're fragile, we're scared, we're anxious, we're skittish, we're easily shaken 
We're insecure. Friends, if that's where we're at this morning, we need a game plan. We identify the problem, but we need to focus on a solution. What is that game plan? Friends, that game plan always begins by looking to God alone to give you that peace, not yourself. Friends, it's looking to God alone right now in this exact moment, in this exact season in your life, no matter what circumstances you and I are facing, right now, that peace is only possible by looking to God alone right now and not to some nostalgic moment or season from your past. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.10, Say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Listen to this challenging quote by David Gibson. He says, quote, When you experience nostalgia, your heart is longing for a more beautiful person than you have ever met or a more beautiful place than you have ever known. You think you're longing for the past, but the past was never as good as your mind is telling you it was. Nostalgia is a form of escapism by taking a vacation in the past instead of grappling with the present or looking to the future in faith. Oh, he's not done. Mr. Gibson goes on to elaborate further, quote, maybe the past was better than the present. But when you start asking, why was it better, what you were doing is denying the reality of God's presence in the present. If you think things are worse, do you think God is no longer in control? Do you think he hasn't brought you to the point where you are right now and that he no longer loves you or has plans or purposes for you? Often when we ask this, it's because we are blind to the good things of the present and ignorant of the evil of the past. Friends, if we're restless and uneasy in our hearts this morning, we need to guard our hearts from thinking nostalgic daydreams is going to solve that problem. Each one of us must stop relying heavily on our own understanding to figure out all the problems and their solutions. We must stop trying to figure out an answer by our own sheer wisdom. Friends, this self-talk we are so prone to doing all the time when we're frustrated. Have you ever said this? Well, this is the way we've always done it. Well, this is how I was raised. Or if everyone just got their act together and did what I wanted them to do, things would be great. There's a button in my office. It's called the Stop It button. It was a going away gift from pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He said in counseling, Blake, you will find yourself saying this all the time, but instead of you saying it, just hit the button. Stop it. Friends, if that's what we've been doing lately, because we're restless in our hearts, we need to stop it. We must stop looking to ourselves from some hidden reservoir of secret knowledge or secret strength. Friends, when we look inward, it is a black hole of weakness and despair. Instead, we need to be instructed this morning by Psalm 62 
on where David found the solution to his deep problems, for those perplexing, agonizing, restless insecurities in our life. Then, verse 1, notice his example of how he combats this lingering issue in all our hearts by uttering a bold declaration about God over himself. Look what he says. For God alone my soul waits in silence. Again, look down at verse 5. He turns this declaration now to a little mini-sermon he preaches to himself. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. That word silent here means a heart full of meekness, quietness, tranquility, a calmness of heart. One whose entire faculties inwardly and outwardly are humbly submitted to the sovereignty of God. William Plummer says it this way, it's an unmurmuring submission to the divine will and patient waiting on God. Thomas Brooks calls this silence, quote, a gracious, prudent silence under the afflicting hand of God which includes a holy quietness and calmness of mind and spirit. It shuts out all inward murmurings of the heart. Such a soul is submissive to God. And then David says he quieted himself in this unmurmuring submission. From him comes my salvation. Right here in verses 1 and 5, we see the first step to God's get out of the depths of endless speculation and introspection of our souls. He gives us the first step how to get out of the pit. The first step of getting out of the pit to experience real peace, real calmness, real quietness of the soul, a peace that can guard and garrison our hearts. It's a heart submitted to God. When we're anxious, we're restless, and we're feeling insecure. It's a submission issue. Before it's a circumstance issue. It's an obedience issue. Not a chemical imbalance issue. There are external factors that can happen. That bring challenges into our life. But our souls are an utter mess and shaken so often because we're not bowing in humble submission to God. Beloved, we cannot expect God to give us his peace and his joy if we're blatantly disobeying, bucking, and stubbornly resisting his will for our life. If God has already made it plain as day what you and I should be doing in our marriages, with our kids, with our church, with our finances, with our jobs, with our children, with a particular sin, with our health, with a harmful habit we won't let go in our life from removing toxic or spiritually unhelpful relationships in our life, whatever that one thing is, friends, get aggressively busy with doing what God says he wants you to do. Delayed obedience only leads to delayed peace from God. 
delayed obedience. Bucking, kicking, suppressing, excuse making, delayed submission under the sovereign will of a wise and loving God it only leads to delayed joy and peace from God. Thomas Lye once said, they that expect to enjoy what God promises will be sure to perform what God commands. His commandments are not burdensome. They are the pathway to joy in him. Look what David says, verse 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation. Verse 5, my hope is from him. What does it mean David's hope was from God? David's confident expectation is that God will be true to his word. God can be trusted no matter what he's going through in his life. Friends, notice what David says. He doesn't say, my hope is from men. My hope is from women. My hope is from my employees to act a certain way. My hope is from fellow church members or pastors. My hope is from politicians and presidents and policies. My hope is from him, he says. Friends, putting your hope in human beings is like carrying a crate of eggs across a tightrope 500 feet in the air with one arm. It's risky and it's foolish. Put your hope in God. It's like standing on a 10-layer slab of concrete in a world of sand you will stand firm as long as your hope is in him. Uh, This morning as I was driving here, I thought, you know, give me a visual, Lord, of why sometimes our hope gets so shaken in our life as Christians. And here's what I think. I think this is the issue. I think the reason our faith gets rocked so much, we have faith crises and all sorts of other things that happen, is because when God brings these things into our life, he reveals something. We have our hope in God here, and sometimes we have our hope in people here. So what happens when the people don't live up to our expectations? What happens? God gets down here because we're still looking to man to be our savior, to be our rock, to be our refuge, to be our soul's peace. And sometimes even the most spiritual of us, we still do this. Well, God's here and man's here. Guys, that's still idolatry. Our hope in God should be here. Our hope in men should be here. Why? Jesus himself did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in man. Friends, we shouldn't even trust ourselves that much. Our hope will be shaken when our hope is in mere mortals. Our hope will remain steadfast and rock solid when our hope is in God where it should be. I hope that resonates with you this morning. When you're finding yourself shaken, skittish, scared, anxious, who's got the higher bar in your life right now? Man or God? David continues, verse 6, He only is my rock and my salvation. Verse 7, on God rest my salvation. Friends, David's got a grip on life because God's grip is on David's faith. This is a statement of fact for David. 
He's not waffling. He's not vacillating like one of those fans you turn on in the summertime. I'm going to hope in God, hope in man. Hope in God, hope in man. Hope in God, hope... No, 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 no. No. This is David's mini statement of faith over his life. My salvation, my hope is in him. Uh, During political campaign seasons, like we're about to embark on now in 2024, both locally and nationally, it's going to become very clear what favorite candidates people have. Look at the signs in their yard. Look at the posts on their Facebook, the stickers on their car, the pamphlets they pass out around town, who they think should run for the office. There are all these different ways that we as human beings might show our stamp of approval as they are publicly advertising our confidence and our trust in a man or a woman and what they promise to do in office. But here in Psalm 62, we see the banner waving over David's life, the sticker on his car or mule, his marketing campaign materials, advertising what he believes is the very core of his existence. Without question, without confusion, it is crystal clear David is preeminently trusting in God alone. Friends, would others say that about you and I? The people we live with this past week, the people we work with, would they look at you and me saying, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, they trust in God. And they trust in Him alone. Would our reputations and witness be more confident in politicians this year more than the God we say we love and worship this morning? And sisters, I pray our testimony would be true of all of us, that God alone is our soul's trust. Pray that would be first true for you before you pray for others in their trust in God. Uh, parents, we should pray for our kids' salvation, that they would trust in the Lord. But here's a challenging question. Do our kids see a confident trust in God coming from us? Friends, it's hypocrisy to tell others to trust God in their life if we're not trusting them in our own. Why does David do this? Why is he so bold and clear about his trust in God? Well, again, his confidence came from his knowledge that only God could save him. But for David, what is he trying to be saved from? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. We see that David's being opposed, attacked, insulted, backstabbed, undermined, and even lied to. People that were once, it appears, on his side and for him, but then turned on him. Look at verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. A poetic imagery here of a leaning wall and a tottering fence, much like a sandcastle for a kid when a wave knocks it down. It's really a Hebrew poetry of speaking of some type of dangerous or fragile situation. It was a sign of probably vulnerability on David's part. Pushback and opposition that he was facing from those in Israel. David sensed an immediate collapse 
some type of drama or conflict that brought a lot of heartache into his life. David knew that unless God was his ultimate trust in the midst of the trial, David's faith would soon collapse. In verse 4, he gets a little more specific about these men, what kind of harm they were bringing into his life. Look what he says in verse 4. They only planned to thrust him down from his high position. In other words, these men, and perhaps even women as well, wanted to take him down, see him removed from his high position of kingly status. While God only wanted what was best for David, these men only wanted what was worse for David. Friends, if we lack genuine love for one another, the Bible says we don't know God. God is love, and love is the leadoff hitter, the fruit that will come out of a real Christian. Uh, friends, if we're wanting God's best for another person, we will not what is worst for them, but what is best for them. 1 John 2 verse 9 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Even someone who's spiritually gifted, they're talented, they're really good with the gifts and tools and skills God's given them. Even giftedness and talent does not triumph over love. Love triumphs over giftedness every time. Andrew Nacelli said this, love is not a spiritual gift. It is essential for using spiritual gifts and it is more important than spiritual gifts. Maybe meditate on 1 Corinthians 13 this week and ask yourself, am I marked by this kind of Christ-like love? These men were probably self-deceived religious people that were opposing David. They thought they were A-OK with God, but in reality, the fruit of their life shows that they weren't. And we can see that they were trying to gain influence. That's why the pronoun there, they, is used. He emphasized a little leaven, can leaven the whole lump. David had more than a kerfuffle, a kerfuffle with one person. It was a growing problem with a number of people. It was stressful for David, and it will be stressful for us. It never feels good to not just have one, but a growing number of people come against you. And David here describes what their sadistic and deceitful tactics were to cause a division around David. The same type of devilish tactics that were used against Jesus in his own life. Look what he says. They take pleasure. It means they're delight. They enjoy. They are entertained by falsehood. They bless with their mouths. But inwardly, they curse. Now, brothers and sisters, God hates lying. God hates untruths. God detests deception. God even hates when people flatter other people. That's exaggerated praise, especially when they're doing it from ulterior motives to try to get on your good side but want something for themselves. That's flattery, and God hates it. It's an abomination to God when someone causes unrepentant sinful division, even in his church. Friends, God is a God of truth. And God loves the truth, and he loves people. Friends, that's why we should all be very careful with our own words. We should say what we mean and mean what we say, 
But it's the total opposite of what we see in verse 4. They spoke out of both sides of their mouth. Their words were empty. Friends, we should be slow to draw conclusions about someone too. Slow to draw good conclusions, slow to draw bad conclusions, until we have all the facts. Truth and time walk hand in hand. God will reveal hypocrisy in his time. And God will vindicate those who have walked in integrity and in the fear of the Lord in his time. Proverbs 10 verse 9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Friends, pray that every man and woman, boy and girl, would be marked by integrity among us. Pray that we would all use our own unique situations and relationships to put a stop to spreading falsehood in our families, shutting down the rumor mill in our churches, remove the entertainment and listening to narratives about people that are simply not true. Spurgeon has good advice. Quote, men should be cautious in their repetition of unfounded tales. I'm sure we've all fallen prey to being just like those men in verses 3 and 4. You ever been nice and smiled to someone's face and then spoke poorly of them behind their back? I have. That's hypocrisy. May God convict us if and when we do that. May he grant us humble hearts that are quick to listen and slow to speak. That's why we need God's grace transforming our hearts. Lord, pray that God would mark us by self-control in this congregation. That we would be marked by self-restraint and not speaking simply what's on our mind at any given time. So when David speaks to salvation here in Psalm 62, he's, he's using it in the most common way that's used in the Old Testament. To rescue him, to protect him, uh, to deliver him from bad guys who want to do bad things to God's name. But in the New Testament, the word saved specifically has a more narrowed focus. To speak of our spiritual salvation in Christ. Uh, said another way, being saved is recognizing truly we are too sinful, too weak, too helpless, too small, too foolish, too fearful, too anxious, too depressed, too inconsistent, too unreliable, too selfish, too carnal, too worldly, too idolatrous, too sensual, and thus insufficient to live out our days unhitched from utter dependence on God. As one theologian said, if God cannot save us, no one else can. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's say that together. Salvation is of the Lord. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot save other men. Salvation from start to finish is a supernatural work of God and God alone. That was Noah's experience, don't you remember, in the ark? Flood the whole earth, save a family of eight, cover the earth, and protected Noah and his family in the ark. That was Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish when God spared his life and gave him a second chance. Friends, that's every sinner's experience who has received Jesus as their Lord and Savior and experienced new life in him. Brothers and sisters, do you know what a summary of the whole Bible is in one sentence? God's rescue plan 
to save an undeserving people and make them lovely in his sight through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. 66 books, Old and New Testament alike. God's rescue plan involving judgment and mercy to save an undeserving people and make them lovely in his sight through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, that's exactly the testimony of the apostles. That's the testimony of the church, and that is the testimony of this local church. Our desire is to see every sinner reconciled to God. Our desire is to see every young child not check off a box because they said a prayer or were put in water, but every child receive the new birth by the omnipotent, omniscient sovereignty of God and cause them to walk in newness of life. Friends, being reconciled to God is what it means to be saved by God. But salvation is a past, present, and future reality. We are saved by God, we are saved for God, and ultimately we are saved from God from the wrath of God in eternal hell forever. Oh, to my non-Christian friend, CCBC is not a perfect church. But CCBC is looking to a perfect God whose Son, Jesus Christ, radiates perfection, who gives us His Holy Spirit, who makes us more perfect into the image of Jesus Christ. We are preaching a word that is perfect to convert souls of sinners. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 19.7. Friends, as a church family, may we be utterly clear every Lord's Day. We are sinners that are in deep trouble with a good and holy God. We are sinners who are unable to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We are sinners whose good works cannot save us. They are too tainted with sin, selfishness, and weakness. Our good looks can't save us. We grow old and our bodies decay and die. Our good intentions can't save us. Our intentions might be sincere, but they are often misinformed and cloaked with pride and self-serving motives. And friends, money and wealth and fame cannot save us because on the day of judgment, the rich and the poor alike, the known and the unknown alike, will all stand alike before the King of Kings. What men said about us here will not matter on the day of judgment before Him. That's why we got to get real with our sin the way God gets real with our sin so that the day of judgment is not an utter rejection. We must call sin what God calls sin. It's evil. It's our attempt to define what is good in our eyes over what God has said is good in His eyes. Sin is the perversion. Sin is the twisting. Sin is the undoing of everything God made good. And friends, the only thing our sin deserves is God's judgment. We can't pay that debt. No amount of good works can do it. But God can. And God did pay that debt by putting his own son, Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, the perfect sacrifice to stand in the place of imperfect, sinful rebels like you and me. And he perfectly satisfied God's wrath to cover our sin, to pay our debt, to wipe our slate clean, to give us new life, a new record and a righteousness outside of ourselves imputed to us. Jesus died, God then raised him from the dead. 
He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his church. He is building his church. He is spreading his gospel and his kingdom all over the world. Friends, how can you and I be saved and get in on this good news? Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the Savior of the world, and he has proven that by rising again from the dead. How do we put God first? Why do we put God first? Because God alone, from him and him alone, comes our salvation. Which leads to point number two. Why else should we put God first? Remember, these points are shorter. From God alone comes our soul's rest and security. From God alone comes our soul's rest and security. Look down briefly at the text. I do need you to look at your Bibles for this because I'm going to go quickly through it. In verse 2 and in verse 6, David calls God his rock. In verse 7, he calls God his mighty rock. In verse 2 and verse 6, he calls God his fortress. Your translation might even say stronghold. Same idea there. In verse 7, he calls God his glory. And then in verses 7 and 8, he calls God his refuge. Did you hear all those references there? A rock, a fortress, a refuge, They all signify the same spiritual reality. It's a sign of protection. It's a sign of safety. If you do a word study throughout the Old Testament, these images can literally physically be rocky crags, cliffs, large boulders, rocky hills, or mountains. Read the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel. What do we find David doing when he was fleeing from his enemies? He found a cave. He found a cliff. He found a cleft in the rock. He found a place to hide from the weather and to hide from his enemies. But here David takes these physical, visual realities from his own life and then he applies them to God who is his protector and safety every day. God himself was his number one form of protection. God himself was his number one safety net. God himself was who his salvation was resting on. Beloved, when David was running from his enemies and seeking out shelter, listen, David knew that mountains and crags and cliffs and castles and horses and armies could only give him some form of protection. But David also knew that his faith cannot rest in those things. Earthly man-made devices, kings, presidents, armies, horses, biceps, armies, leaders, children, spouses, friends, pastors, churches, all of those things cannot be our highest hope. Only God can be our ultimate refuge and rest. We read an interesting text in 1 Samuel 23, 14, how God uses means to protect people. 
1 Samuel 23, 14. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness. There's those physical structures. So he's using sanctified common sense. Take cover. In the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Oh, that's one of those good texts in the Bible. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. This is really echoing what we read in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Brothers and sisters, we too must come to a place of resolve where our rest and security is really ultimately in God. This is where it gets real practical, folks. 2020 with COVID and the election and all that, it exploited how many Christian souls are not resting in God. I don't even care what your opinions are about vaccines and masks. The point is how we respond to trials, how we respond to fear, how we respond to anxiety in every year and every season of our life reveals who our rock really is. Security cameras and surveillance cameras that watch out for bad dudes and thieves is a good thing. Military personnel, the FBI, Homeland Security that investigates, protects, and guards our nation from terrorists, cyber attacks, and illegal activity flooding into our country, that's a good thing. Having our CCBC security team that serves our church by keeping a watchful eye and being ready to protect our church as needed when we're gathered in this place, that's a good thing having life insurance, hiding in tornado shelters, staying away from dangerous people, removing yourself from suspicious activity, keeping your kids in good schools or around respectable and safe adults is a good thing. Going to the doctor to check on our health is a good thing. Mapping out the safest path to drive your family is a good thing. A pilot rerouting a plane to eliminate dangerous weather in the sky is a good thing. But friends, these things and so much more are really good things, but they are not the ultimate thing. We should take every measure we can to be responsible in our life, to protect the vulnerable, and to consider all the options before us. But at the end of the day, friends, at the end of the day, our rest, our soul security is not in these things. Our rest and security is in God and God alone. That's why David then turns to the congregation of Israel as if he was turning to the congregation here in CCBC. Notice what he says in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people, O members of CCBC and guest. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Brothers and sisters, who does that sound like in the New Testament? Who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Dane Orland says this, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. 
the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is gift, not transaction. Friends, that is sweet. The only thing that is required of us to come to Jesus is the burdens we're willing to give to him. What burdens weigh heavy on your soul this morning? What's making you feel restless, skittish, insecure? Second guess God's will for your life. What is it? Whatever that is, Jesus is saying, bring it to me. Come to me. And in exchange for your burden, leave it with me. And I will give you rest. Not rest from a hard life, but rest in your soul that can give you the strength to face a hard life. That's a Savior worth calling upon. Amen? Trust in Him at all times, O members of CCBC. Pour out your heart to Him. He, the Lord Jesus, is a safe refuge for us. Why should we put God first? Why should we put the Lord Jesus Christ first? Because from Him and Him alone comes our security and rest. Which leads to our last point, point number three. From God alone comes enduring strength, committed love, and just reward. In verses 9 and 10, David mentions who and what we should not trust in for our ultimate salvation. The who and what we should not put our hope and security in. In verse 9, look with me. He says it's foolish to put all your heart's faith and trust in human beings of any caliber or of any status. He speaks of those who are of low estate. These are people who are often poor, impoverished, lower statuses in society. We could even apply this even more broadly. Children themselves who may not have a big right or priority or say in society. Then he speaks of those of high estate, those who are high ranking, respect, wealth, and fame. You know what David says? Whether they are people of low status or high, they are all but a mere breath and delusion. These are Hebrew words speaking of the fleeting nature of a thing. It's temporal nature. Friends, human beings are but a mere breath on the scale of eternity. There's Blake Boylston's life. There's Larry Porter's life. There's Zoe's life. That's why it is folly and a fool's error to put your hope and fear in someone whose existence is a breath. 
on the day of judgment, the strongest and most mightiest men and women on the planet will be tiny compared to our sovereign and holy God. David says, don't trust in men. Verse 10, David says, it's then foolish to chase money, both for ungodly reasons and with ungodly means. Things like extortion and robbery, robbery they're, they're only manifestations of greed for unjust gain. Look, look, look what he says. It's a whole contrast here. Put no trust and no vain hopes in these things. And then he even says at the end of that text, do not set your heart on wealth if it increases, even through hard work, even through a family inheritance, even through savings in a 401k and a gift out of nowhere. Don't put your hope if your money or your wallet or your bank account increases. Friends, wealth is a gift from God, but wealth is a bad God to serve. Did you hear that? Baptist churches, that's an amen. Okay? That'll preach. Wealth is a gift from God, but it is a bad God to serve. Money is a terrible God. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Those dollar bills, quite literally, just right through your fingers. Friends, Jesus said a lot about money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, we should pray to be generous, sacrificial, and faithful with whatever stewardship God gives us. May God guard our hearts from making money, wealth, our security, and our God, because money is a bad God to serve. David says, trust not in these things. Men who are by day, money that is here today and gone tomorrow, trust in God alone. Friends, if you're looking for some fighter verses, that's what I call them, kind of ammo in the gun when you're struggling or tempting to trust in man more than God, put that bar too high, or your finances and money, let me give you some fighter text just to put in the old back pocket to read and chew on later. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. And boy, y'all better be reading this this year with that election coming. I want us to be a church built on the rock. Here it is, Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And then with finances, I would encourage you to read 1 Timothy 6. Just read the whole chapter. I'll save us some time. Read 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you'll find out that the love of money, and if we have it, should be used wisely and generously so that we protect our hearts from making it a God. But then in verses 11 and 12, David closes this psalm with the confidence we should all be clinging to over and above people and stuff. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me as we close. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Uh, here it's kind of interesting, it's somewhat ambiguous what David's doing here. David may have heard the truth from God at one point in his life, and it really didn't stick, but somehow God brought it back up to his mind again. Or it could be simply David highlighting the fact that God's word has been seeking him out, loud and clear. Either way, David knows what God has said, and he's relying on what God has said. 
He says, in essence, from God alone comes power. What is power? It's enduring strength and might. How do we know we can get power from God? Because he's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. He's our refuge. From him alone comes our great salvation. He says from God alone comes steadfast love. There's that Hebrew word again we've looked at in previous weeks. Kesed or hesed, depending on your interpretation of that pronunciation. Which is God's faithful and committed love to his people. Will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he says from God alone comes a rendering. A recompense to a man according to his work. This is talking about just reward. For the unbeliever, that's really bad news. If God gave us what we deserve, that means we will be held accountable for every sin we've ever committed. That is terrible news for someone who doesn't know Jesus. To have God render back to us every sinful deed we have ever committed against him. But for the Christian who is saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ, we will not enter those pearly gates because of our works, but because of the works of Christ done for us. And yet because God is infinitely generous, he will reward the good works we have done in his name, for his glory, and the power of his spirit that he gave us to walk in. Friends, there is coming a reward for all his children, for everything we've ever done, small or big, whether we were recognized or not, if we did it in his name. God will keep his word. God will have the final word. Every word of God will prove true. What did Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Friends, how are we doing in this spiritual fight these days? I mean, really ask that question. Are we putting God first? Is God the center of our life? Is he really the rock by which we are building our entire life on? How are you and I doing preparing for each day? I mean, I started off this sermon with Piper saying, every day I wake up, I feel like I need to get saved again with Satan sitting on my face. That'll be an interesting drawing, kids, if you do draw that and show me at the door. I'll leave that up to your imagination. Friends, if that's the battle we face, an invisible war with a fallen world and indwelling sin, my goodness, we've got to prepare, right? So what did David do in Psalm 62? He quieted his soul. And he submitted his entirety of his life to the sovereign will of God. Brian Croft, as I close, gives us a good word about the discipline of solitude and silence in the Christian life. Listen carefully. Silence exposes the soul. A common defense mechanism is to use busyness and noise to avoid pain in our lives. It could be unresolved pain and abuse from the past, 
or it could be a current suffering. Regardless, noise and distraction can give the illusion it isn't there or that it has no power. Silence can expose the deep pain and demonstrate its undeniable presence in our souls. It is when we are still and silent that we become more aware of our emotions, what our minds obsess over, and the physical pain we feel that could be related to stress and anxiety. Silence with biblical meditation is a wonderful tool and gift from God to bring that awareness. We can only shepherd our people to the places to which we have personally gone and experienced. Embrace silence with meditation as that peaceful healing balm for your noisy, restless soul. Christ has gone before us. His Spirit is renewing us. Our God will fight for us. Our God will be with us. He will counsel us. He will guide us. And His strength will sustain us. Because God is our mighty fortress, the church militant will one day be the church triumphant. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Let's pray. Father, silence does expose our souls. Lord, you know what's there. And you know the solution to it. Father, you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, who tells us not to run away, but to come. To come to Christ. To pour out our heart before him. Father, we pray even in this last song that we will make Psalm 62 our prayer, our statement of faith, and our song. Teach us, Lord, what it means to quiet our souls in humble submission to you as we pour out our hearts to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.